beginning in verse 44. God's word says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to understand, eyes to see and hearts to understand what is happening here on this horrible, this wonderful cross. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Many of you have heard of Corey Ten Boom. She lived in Holland during World War II, and she sought to be faithful to God by protecting Jews so they would not be arrested and then sent into Nazi concentration camps. In her book, The Hiding Place, she tells of what led to them helping the Jews, how she was eventually actually arrested herself and sent and then lived in these concentration camps. But before she gets to that, though, she tells of her childhood and of the many happy days she had. However, one day was not happy. It was when she was about six years old, and she, her family had heard that a young child had passed away. So they went to the person's home, and in that day, in that culture, if the person died, you would put them in the living room in their casket, open, so people could come and pay their last respects. And as they came into the room, her mother immediately went to grieve, to help the grieving mother, to give her a hug, and yet she and her older sister were staring at the coffin. And she was frozen. She didn't know what to do. And her sister went up and touched the body and then went on. And then finally, she reached out a finger and touched the child and she felt cold all over. That night, as she got ready for bed, she was lying there. And when her father came in, she cried. She burst into tears. I need you. You can't die. You can't. Death had gone from being this thing she knew about intellectually to being a reality. And one day she knew her dad would die, her mom would die, and she would die. Well, her father came and sat beside her and asked her a question. He said, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam on the train, when do I give you the ticket? She sat there and sniffled and considered, and finally she said, well, just before we get on the train. Her father replied, exactly. And our wise Father in heaven knows when we're going to need things too. Don't run ahead of him, Corey. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will be given the strength you need just in time. And what are the final moments before death like? You know, none of us really know. It might be instantaneous. We might die of a car crash. It might be slow and prolonged as our body falls apart. We don't know what it will be like, and yet we will all die unless Jesus returns. Well, in this passage before us, we are given the last moments of Jesus' life. What was it like for him? It's rather fascinating. As you think about biographies, if you've ever read about someone's life, 
Most of the book is about their life. Very little is about their death. And yet all of the Gospels spend a major portion on the last week of Jesus' life and then a very significant portion on his death. Well, why? Well, because he didn't just come to live. He came for the purpose of dying. Well, why did he come to die? Well, we don't have to guess. We're shown here. We're given three commentaries on Jesus' final moments so we know exactly what's going on. We're also given three immediate responses to Jesus' final moments. So first, we're going to see in verses 44 to 46, three different commentaries, three explanations of what is going on at the cross. If you like to number these, the first one is the commentary of darkness. The second is the commentary of the veil. And the third is the commentary of the cry of commitment. But first, the commentary of darkness, because Luke tells us it's the sixth hour. Now, they had 24 hours in a day, just like we do. And yet they numbered them differently. They began their hours when it became daylight. So after one hour of daylight was the first hour. After six hours would be about noon, the middle of the day. And Luke tells us that there was darkness from the sixth to the ninth hour, three hours. In 2017, our family took a trip to Yellowstone and we planned months in advance. And as we were getting closer to the time, I kept seeing all these things online about this great eclipse that was coming in the U.S. And then we realized we were going to be traveling on the day of what would be called the Great American Eclipse. And some of you older adults, or even just adults, may remember this, where all the way across the continental U.S. there was a total eclipse. You had to be, though, in this certain area. And then every, almost every portion, you could see at least a partial eclipse. So the day came where we were driving. We got up early, started driving out of Colorado, started going into Wyoming. And as we went, we knew, because you could look all these things up, when we would be in the totality zone, where we would be in the total eclipse and where we needed to be. So we're driving along on these empty roads normally in Wyoming, and we start seeing more cars. And as we go at every pull-off, we see cars parked. And we start going, well, where are we going to stop? Because we got to see this. And then finally we get to what is normally probably a small Wyoming town, and there's thousands of people. We found this place, we were able to park, and we waited, and we watched. And it was amazing. You could see the sun totally eclipsed. It was like dusk in the middle of the day. The animals got quiet because they thought it was night. It was really amazing for two minutes. If you'd gone to the restroom at the wrong time, you would have missed the whole thing. The the amazing thing is we know when the next eclipse is going to be. We know how long it's going to be. We're going to know where you can be to be in the totality zone. And none of them, none of the eclipses past or present are close to three hours. What is going on here is not a naturally explainable eclipse. It is a supernatural sign from God giving a commentary on the cross. What's the commentary? Well, we've got to understand, what's the biblical idea of darkness? Well, darkness is when there is suffering. There is judgment due to sin. That's why the prophet Amos, when he tells of God's coming judgment to Israel, he says in Amos 8, 9, On that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Or the last plague before the Passover plague in Egypt was darkness over the land. It was judgment. 
In contrast to all that, 1 John 1 says God is light. And then there's no darkness at all. Thus, by causing it to be dark for three hours, God is showing his judgment. You know, God gives us the picture of darkness to show us that sin is being punished. Now, to be clear, this punishment is not for any sin Jesus committed. This is for the sins that Jesus is taking for his people. That's why there's still a future darkness, an outer darkness for those who don't trust in Christ. Matthew talks of this outer darkness and Jude tells of a punishment in utter darkness still to come. Yet for those who trust in Christ, those who follow him, the darkness has been taken and we will be those who with God will be in the perfect light of life. That's why when John the apostle looks and he's given a vision of heaven, In Revelation 21, it tells us in this new heaven, this new earth, in this Jerusalem that comes down, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and there will be no night there. Well, Why? Because all sin, all of its effects are gone, and we are with God forever. So there is perfect light And we can have confidence that this future heaven, this future earth, this future Jerusalem that will come will be without darkness because the judgment of darkness was not the only commentary. There was a second commentary in Jesus' final moments, and that is the commentary of the veil, the second commentary. We see this in verse 45 because it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now think about what the temple is representing God had Israel make a tabernacle. Then he had them make a temple, and it was God showing, I want to be with you. God was making a way for us to be with him. But then, as you may know, in the temple, there were various sections. There were various curtains. There were various rooms. And the further you went into these, the less access you could have. You would have to be a priest. You had to be taking a sacrifice. And each time you went further, There was another veil, another thing that showed, yes, God wants to be with you, but there's a barrier, and that barrier is sin. That barrier keeps you from having that relationship with God that he wants to have with you. And then there was one curtain before the Holy of Holies, and only one person could go behind that curtain, and only once a year. On the Day of Atonement, when they had first made a sacrifice for themselves, because they had to take care of the barrier of their own sin, then they would go in and Give the sacrifice for the whole people. Well, while Jesus is on the cross, Luke tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Mark 15, 38 tells us that this occurred from the top to the bottom. You know, a human might be able to tear something from the bottom up, but this curtain was so high, only God could have torn it from the top to the bottom. And this was God's commentary again on what Jesus' life and death accomplished. And you can see the picture by Jesus taking God's judgment, the Father's judgment on the cross in the darkness. We can now have full access to God. The barrier is taken away. This is what was read earlier, Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. 
That is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' death took the veil, tore it in two so that we can have access with God. How do you feel when you know you've done something wrong and you know the other person knows you've done something wrong and you got to go talk to them about it? Guilt. You don't even want to look at them in the face. You kind of want to come in and you kind of glance up. Are they staring at me? What's going on? Well, if we're honest, we all have guilt before God. If we're honest, we've all said, done, and thought things that cause a barrier in our relationship with him. So how can we come before him? Well, it's not because we were good enough or are good enough. It's because Jesus was perfect in our place. That's what takes away the barrier that tears it in two. Jesus was the high priest who offered the sacrifice. Not only that, he was the sacrifice himself. And now he's the temple. He's the one who gives us God's presence. Revelation 21 that I referred to earlier not only says there's no need for light because he is the light. It also says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. So we don't now need to go to some physical building. You don't have to come here to experience God's presence. You don't need to go to a certain city to be in God's presence. You need a person not a place. You need to know Jesus Christ and he brings you into full fellowship with God. A.W. Tozer in his famous work, The Pursuit of God, writes, Ransom men need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known in continuous experience. It is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. Do you have that confidence, that joy of being in God's presence, that assurance that I can come and be with the Father? Do you know that life of communion with God? And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what he purchased on the cross, fellowship and union with God. And so there was the commentary of darkness. There was the commentary of the veil. And third, we see a commentary in Jesus' cry of commitment in verse 46. Because Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's rather amazing. It's rather intriguing that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. It's amazing because As someone hung on a cross, what normally killed them was not the nails in their feet or their hands. It was not normally the beatings beforehand. What killed them was their body weighed down and they couldn't breathe. They died by asphyxiation, as it said. The longer they hung there, the less less they could breathe. And so what may have started as screams at the soldiers, shouts are now whimpers, barely utterable syllables. And yet Jesus cries out with a loud voice. Not only is it amazing, it's intriguing because did God the Father need to hear a loud voice? Is he getting old and, hey, can't hear you, sonny? No, 
He, he didn't even have to say words. At any moment, you can pray to God. They don't have to come from your lips. It can come from your heart and you can commune and pray with God. Jesus didn't cry with a loud voice so his father could hear. He cried with a loud voice so we would hear. So we would know what's going on. Well, why? Because he wanted us to know that no one took his life from him. He laid it down because right after this, he died. He gave up his spirit. At any moment, he could have stopped this. You know, sadly, many people look at Jesus on the cross and go, oh, such a tragedy. Oh, his, his mission that ended, what he wanted to accomplish, it failed. You know, Jesus did not have a tragic end. Rather, it was a triumphant, conquering end. Sinclair Ferguson aptly writes, Jesus died not as a victim for whom we should feel sentimental sympathy, but as a king who reigns from the cross. Jesus triumphantly, deliberately, willingly, consciously, sovereignly commits his hand and his whole being into the care of his heavenly father, knowing his work is ended. As we began the service, I read from Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is a prayer of David as he is being attacked by people for something he didn't do. As you go through the Psalms, sometimes there's these interesting Psalms where they're professing, they're protesting, I'm innocent. What they're accusing me of, I didn't do. Now, they're not claiming total righteousness in their life, but there have been times in our lives when we've been accused of something and we can say, well, I'm guilty of lots of things, but I'm not guilty of that. I'm innocent of this charge. And so David's crying out to God saying, look at me, I'm innocent and I'm going to commit my life into your hands because though everyone on earth may judge me a sinner on this account, you know I'm righteous. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He's saying, look, Father, you know that what I'm being punished for is not because I did anything wrong. I'm an innocent sufferer, but I'm a purposeful innocent sufferer. I'm suffering for them. You know, Jesus was dying not for anything he had done, but for our sins. As we sing, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Thus, Jesus, though innocent, suffers God's wrath and knows that he can trust the Father. He can trust him with his life because he will judge justly. In other words, this is a prayer of faith, knowing that the Father will rescue him. Knowing that though a wall of separation has occurred in between the relationship with God and man, that wall, the curtain, has been torn in two. And so we have these commentaries. So we can know, what is the cross all about? Not only do we have these commentaries, though, we're now given three pictures of how should we respond. Three immediate responses to Jesus' final moments. The second point, and if you like to number them, the first one we could say is belief. The second is sorrow, and the third is uncertainty. Belief, sorrow, and uncertainty. If I was super clever, that would spell something, but BSU is just BSU. It doesn't spell anything. So belief, sorrow, uncertainty. And first, we see the centurion, verse 47, and he says, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion was a Roman soldier. He was over a hundred people. And for some reason, he was given this 
job to oversee crucifixions, and surely he'd probably seen and heard just about everything from people crucified. He'd probably heard sobs of agony, shouts of anger, threats, entreaties, cries of mercy. But as all of us have experienced, what is exciting and thrilling after a while just becomes, eh, yeah, I do that every day. I had a friend in college, he worked as a night shift worker at the morgue. So when someone died, he would be the one who would receive a call, say, come down to 367 Avenue K, and he'd go down and pick up the body. Well, you can imagine the first few times this was kind of traumatic, but he said after a while, you just kind of get used to it. So dead body, put it on the thing, put it in the car, and take it to the morgue. He could get used to it. It just became the routine of the daily, or for him, nightly job. Well, the centurion was probably used to this routine, except something was different about Jesus. He says, this one, I've seen a lot, I've seen it all, or at least I thought I had, until I saw this man die. What did he see? He'd seen Jesus say in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He saw another criminal turn to him and say, remember me in paradise. And Jesus say, you will be with me today in paradise. He had seen Jesus act radically different than any other person. He had just experienced total darkness for three hours. And as all these facts are flooding through his mind, he comes to really one one option. And that is to believe what Jesus claimed about himself. It leads him to say that Jesus was innocent. And now this declaration of innocence is really important. As we've noted through this trial of Jesus and then his condemnation and crucifixion, he has often been declared innocent. This is actually the sixth time that Jesus was declared innocent. Three times Pilate said he's innocent. Once Herod said he was innocent. The other thief on the cross said he's innocent. Over and over we're being given the picture that Jesus was put to death, though innocent. His death was a travesty of human injustice. A travesty of human justice. Though we know it fulfilled God's eternal justice for the just, Jesus died for the unjust. Now while here in verse 47 it says this man was innocent, the word for innocent actually more commonly means righteous. And I think he's saying more than Jesus didn't commit a crime. And I say that because if you look at Mark 15, verse 39, we know the fuller expression of what he said. And he also said, truly, this was the son of God. The man closest to the cross, the one who was there oversawing it, put all the facts together and said, there's no other explanation for what I've seen and heard than that this man was and is the righteous man. This one is the son of God. And so he responds with belief that Jesus is who he says he is. But that's not the only response we see. As we move out from the cross, as you imagine the cross closest was the soldiers, centurions, and then radiating out is the next group of people, and that's the crowds, and their response is sorrow. They came to watch a spectacle, but they leave beating their breast. Now, that's not something we do very often, but that was their cultural expression of sorrow. We may sit there and knock our hand against our head or hit our head, 
slowly against a wall or do many other things to show our sorrow. And yet they would beat their breasts. But this wasn't actually common for everyone. This was the way that normally women express their sorrow. So this is deep sorrow that the men and women are in agony over what has happened. Well, why? Why are they in sorrow? You know, these are the people who had chanted. They cheered for Jesus to be crucified, and now they regret it. Was it because crucifixion was just horrendously ugly? Perhaps this was like the beginning of the Civil War. You may have heard of one of the early battles, July 16th, 1861. Union troops were coming out to defend the city, and the Confederates were moving up. They'd already had the Battle of Fort Sumter, and it looked from the northern perspective that this was going to be a quick and easy affair. So not only did the soldiers come out to the battle, but one person writes, also in this group was happy women that carried picnic baskets, people with opera glasses, champagnes, and tickets that had been printed for a grand ball in Richmond. Hey, we're about to have a battle. Let's go have a picnic. This is going to be great. Except while they came in a joyous celebratory mood, it was soon ended as Stonewall Jackson Jackson, led an attack that broke through the Union lines and a newsman reported all sense of manhood seemed to be forgotten. Even the sentiment of shame had gone. Every impediment to flight was cast aside. In a riotous dash of soldiers, horses, and all those civilians who had come to watch. A battle. This will be exciting. Is that what happened? Did these people in Jerusalem go and go, oh, do you got plans this afternoon? Hey, we could go watch the crucifixion. This will be cool. Is that what's happening? And then they got there and they go, oh, this is really ugly. Well, perhaps. But I think it's actually something much deeper. I think it's that they saw the exact same things that the centurion saw. They saw Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them. They saw Jesus tell the other thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. They saw the darkness that was unexplainable by anything natural. And they realized we have put an innocent one to death. And they left in deep sorrow. And Luke actually has prepared us for this. Because as you read through Luke's gospel, there's only one other time that someone beats their breast. It's in Luke 18. It's in a time when Jesus tells this parable, these two people who go up to the temple to pray. The first was a Pharisee, someone who they all considered righteous. And he goes in and basically he prays, God, I'm a wonderful guy. You should love me because I do this, this, and this. And thankfully, I'm not like that guy, the tax collector. And then Jesus switches and talks about the tax collector who says, God, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me. And he beat his breast. It's a sign not just of sorrow for suffering, but it's a sorrow for sin. And when we looked at that passage in Luke 18, we noticed that his cry for mercy was not any generic cry. It was actually the word used for the sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system. That tax collector was crying out that God wouldn't look at him, but he would look at the lamb who was sacrificed in his place. And then Jesus, surprisingly to their ears, shockingly said, well, the Pharisee went home not righteous, and the tax collector went home declared to be righteous. So are the ones who are here leaving the cross, beating their breast, are they looking to Jesus as that propitiatory sacrifice? 
But we're not told that. But rather, we're just told they felt very regretful. They felt very sorrowful over their actions. And I would argue they are actually in a very precarious, a very dangerous position where they are, and they may not even realize it. You know, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7, that we can have sorrow, but that sorrow can lead us to life, or that sorrow can lead us to death. You know, there may be some sin in your life that you look back on, and you just utterly regret it. And you have sorrow. Or you may come, you may hear about the cross and what happened to Jesus, and you just feel overwhelming sorrow. You could go watch the movie, The Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson, and you can just feel, oh, so sad what happened to Jesus. Except if you're left with only feeling sad for your sin, if you're only left feeling sad for what happened with Jesus, then you haven't gone far enough. God wants us to do more than only feel sorrowful. He wants us to repent. The reason of that sorrow is going to pass. How many Easter's have we gone through and all? Going to be affected by this. This is going to change my life. And then you have that ham and feeling a lot better. And something else comes in your life that distracts you. Sorrow will not motivate you to a life of godliness. The world, the flesh, and the devil will continue to entice us. But thankfully, the story doesn't end here because Luke, who wrote this, also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And then in Luke chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 2, we read of Peter talking to the people in Jerusalem. And he proclaimed in Acts 2, 22 through 24, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You know, Peter's preaching to these people who'd been part of this. And he says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Jesus, Peter is talking to them about what happened. And he goes on to show how Jesus' death fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And he shows that, look, Jesus was not a sufferer just to be pitied. He's the Lord of the universe, Peter declares, the one before whom you must bow. Thus, Peter concludes in Acts 2.36 by saying, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But notice what happens next. Because then there's a similar reaction to what we read about in Luke 23, because it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They begin to have that sorrow again. But then they ask, they say to Peter, what shall we do? And Peter doesn't say, well, feel really sorry. Really beat yourself up because y'all were horrible. You killed Jesus. You, You should feel really bad for the rest of your life and beat yourself up. He says, no. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says the very thing that you wrongfully did that makes you feel guilty, that allows you to be forgiven. So repent. Turn from what you thought about Christ. Believe in Him and cry out. And then it says that following this, about 3,000 of them believed. They weren't just led by emotions. They knew the facts. They had what happened on the cross. 
They had the commentary by Peter. And then it led them to go, I understand and I believe. Their response was to realize that, look, we don't just need sorrow for the sufferer. Yes, God calls us to have sorrow for putting him there, but also confession, repentance, submission, and thanks that Jesus is also the risen Lord and Savior. So how are you responding? Are you merely sorrowful, regretful, or are you sorrowfully repenting? Now, as a pastor, I would really love for the third response to be this crescendo, this exciting, exhilarating response of the third group. And yet we end with the third group kind of, eh, they just sit there. They're uncertain. And that's what we see last in verse 49, because we've seen the centurion in his faith. We've seen the crowds in their weeping, their sorrow. But then the third response is these women There's some other followers of Jesus who are standing afar off and watching. And what do they do? Well, they're not believing like the centurion and they're not weeping like the crowds. They're kind of like, what's going on? They're in that haze when you've had a deep tragedy and your mind is just muddled. They can't figure it out. You know, they didn't understand, even though Jesus had told them several times, look, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be tortured and crucified. They didn't believe it. And Peter even said, I rebuke you. Don't talk like that. They didn't understand. And so we know what they do after this. They will go and the women will try and anoint Jesus' body. They think it's over. He died. End of story. The disciples go into hiding. And I think from them, we need to draw a very important application. And that is if you come to Jesus with the wrong expectations, You're going to be let down. They're very well-meaning Christians in the world, and they want to see people come to Christ. And so they go around, they start telling people, if you come to Christ, and then they start telling all these wonderful things that will happen in your life. Oh, you're going to, and they better health, more money. Or maybe they don't state it so boldly as that. They just kind of imply that if you come to Jesus, life is going to be better. Well, yes, life eternally will But sometimes coming to Christ makes your life harder. Sometimes you're going to have more conflict with people. You're going to have a greater struggle with sin. You're going to have more trials because of following Christ. I've even known people who thought, if I follow Christ, he's going to make sure I have a good marriage and my kids go well. And as their marriages have fallen apart, as their children haven't lived as they have thought they should, they've left the faith. And God has let me down. I kept up my end of the bargain. I trust in you, God, and you give me a good life. Except there's a major problem, and one of the problems is what we're seeing here. Jesus is on the cross. He followed God perfectly. You know, God's path of victory is through defeat. It's through a cross. And so that is our own life, too. Jesus himself said, in this world, there will be tribulation. Coming to Christ does not remove all hardships. In fact, it might make some new ones that didn't exist before. Coming to Christ doesn't mean all your doubts and despair will go away. Yet though perfection is not promised on earth, Jesus did not end by saying, in this world there will be tribulation. He ended it by saying, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus conquered 
He's the victor and he will return. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him and we will have to stand before him. The question is, are you ready for that time? Earlier I told of Corey Ten Boom and her fear of death and how her father came and talked to her and said, look, you can trust God now and he'll take care of the future. But Corey goes on to tell she had an aunt, Aunt Johns, J-N-S, probably say it some other way, I'll just say Jans. And Aunt Jans was afraid of death. And whenever a family member would die, it would propel her, push her into greater religious activity. She would be vigorous in writing evangelistic tracts, having evangelistic meetings. She would be passionately getting involved in helping the poor and giving fundraisers and giving speeches. And yet she also had another problem, that is she had disease that Corey would test for every week. And the doctor said, when the test result comes like this, come see me because it's probably near the end. And so Aunt Jans was living this very dedicated life for the Lord because she was afraid of dying. And then the day came when Corey took the test and she ran it and it was what she was told to fear. And so she went to the doctor and said, this is it. And he put it in his little machine or whatever he had. And he said, yes, she probably has about three weeks to live. So she went home and got her family and they went up the stairs and they all went into Aunt Jan's room and they knocked and she let her in, let them in. And her father said, my dear sister-in-law, there is a joyous journey which each of God's children sooner or later sets out on. And Jan's, some must go to their father empty-handed, but you will run to him with hands full. And then other family members kind of start recounting some of the things you've done. Look, all your clubs. Look, you've done all your writings, these funds you've raised, your talks. And then Corey writes, but all our well-meant words were useless. In front of us, the proud face crumpled. Aunt Jans put her hands over her eyes and began to cry. Empty. Empty, she said. She choked through her tears. How can we bring anything to God. What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? And then as we listen in disbelief, she lowered her hands and with tears still coursing down her face, whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that you have done it all, all on the cross, and that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. Corey's aunt committed her life into her father's hand. God gave her the faith to see, look, it's not how zealous I am for him. It's not how religiously devoted I was. Into your hands, we lift up our eyes. Into your hands, we commit our spirits. And we can commit our spirits to God. We can commit our lives to him because Jesus committed his for us to the father. That's what we're being shown. He came and entered the darkness so that the separation between God, the veil could be torn away so that we too could entrust ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, one day each of us will come before you. Lord, may all of us in here come, not in our own strength, but as this Aunt Jan's, knowing that we can entrust it all to you. We can entrust it all to your son and we can entrust ourselves into your hands. You are our good father who made a way for us to be restored that we may have that perfect fellowship, perfect relationship with you. It's in your son's name we pray.
Amen. Well, let's stand and sing of this together.